Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. What a crazy start to the NBA playoffs. A team that was very much one of the betting line favorites to win the whole thing. The number one seed in the Eastern Conference has been sent home packing in the first round. Woo! And the two seed and the three seed... Over in the West, they're both on the verge of elimination as well. Absolutely banana start to the NBA playoffs. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm your big, bald, and beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Of course, I'm joined inside the FCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction by the producer extraordinaire Dawson Iserlo, a.k.a. D-Lo, a.k.a. Two Degrees, a.k.a. Mr. LSUE. Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing okay. Doing okay. How about you? You know what? I just wanted to say I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate you as well. Because, you know, not many individuals would be able to get past their bias against their co-host's alma mater like you do. Because obviously you have a hatred for LSUA, yet we're working through it. And I appreciate that. Thank you. I had to pick a school that had a vowel after the abbreviated name of the university's affiliate. Oh, man. And I didn't have room for both of them. It's draft day. Yeah, I actually was thinking about this on the way here. I wish we had a live camera shot of Kevin Foote because I imagine it's something like a kid on Christmas morning or, getting up and running into the living no, room, checking to see if the no, presents are there. No, no, no. It's not that, Joy. See, for you, Joy. For a lot of fans out there listening, Joy. You know what today's going to be like for old Footsie? You have any idea? No, I think he's excited. I really do. But he's also, he gets stressed. There will be pacing. There so will be. So it's more like Christmas Eve for a kid who's like wondering if Santa's going to come. Uh, a, a kid that's possibly deserves some coal in his stocking, worried that he's going to not get presents. Yes, <laughs> that's that's how that's the, that's the, going to be the energy of our guy Kevin Foot today. Oh, cat! Oh, cat! Oh, that guy's. Oh, he'll be. He'll get. We get around pick twelve. Cat, why did they take him? Oh no, that's all. Oh, that means. Oh, what are we going to do here, cat? Is, is he going to fall? Or am I going to? Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> It, that's that's what it's going to be like for tonight's first round for old, old, old Footsie. But yes, it is always entertaining. We'll talk about the draft. We'll actually hear from Mickey Loomis. Little surprise media 
session with the man in charge of the New Orleans Saints yesterday. We'll share that with you a little bit later on on today's RP3 and Company. Get you ramped up for the draft. And today's show, all four guests, NFL Draft. We're gearing you up. We're getting you prepared. College Football Hall of Famer, three-time Super Bowl champion, Randy Cross will join us to preview the draft and also share a little bit about his draft experience. Chrissy Freud, quarterback expert, NFL draft reporter, will be joining us. We're going to dissect the five quarterback prospects that people believe will be selected in the first round. She's also going to give us an under-the-radar one or two guys to keep an eye on that could be day two guys. Les East from CrescentCitySports.com will give us the Saints perspective. What does he hear? What does he think they're going to do with their first-round pick tonight, number 29, in the NFL draft? And then Vinny Iyer, NFL reporter columnist for the Sporting News, will join us as well to preview the draft in its entirety. So it's draft, 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 draft. It's what we're going to do today here in RP3 and Company. But that'll be later. We're going to lead off today's show talking about the NBA playoffs. Insane. Absolutely insane. I want to start in the West first. Memphis bouncing back, answering is what we expected. I still believe the Lakers are in control of that series. But Memphis had to respond. And I like the fact that the young team who's on the brink of elimination, responds to avoid the gentleman's sweep. I still like the Lakers to find a way to win that series. Credit Memphis for winning a game. That's great. I It, it had the feel of this team is giving everything it can to avoid being eliminated, somewhat like what Atlanta did with Boston. Obviously, Memphis was the more motivated team. They played better. And now they live to play another day. I still like the Lakers as the seven to take down the two seed, the Memphis Grizzlies. It sure does feel like in the other series... That Sacramento's done. To go up 2-0 in a playoff series, and you have the other team's enforcer knocked out of game three because of the suspension. You have all the momentum. You have all the control. The defending champs look slow. The defending champs look out of it. The defending champs don't appear to be all that ready to defend their title. And then Golden State bounces back, wins both games in San Francisco. And we talked about it. A series doesn't really change until the road team wins a game. Well, game five goes back to Sacramento last night in the Warriors' one. And the Warriors are in 
awful. They may be the worst team this year in the NBA on the road. And you allowed them to come into your place and take a game. I feel like Golden State's going to win this series now. I just, I just, it feels like, because, and here's the other thing, we, we see this all the time, experience matters. And as great as Fox has played for Sacramento, and as great of a story as it is for them this year, you knew Golden State was going to respond when they went back home. I think the Draymond Green suspension gave them an extra boost because that's just kind of how they're built. But then last night they went on the road, Dawson, and I was like, it's a great story for Sacramento. Amazing story. But now they've lost three straight in this series, and Golden State has all the momentum. Yeah, I think some of that road stuff is regular season stuff. Um, and I, I do think it it matters a little bit, but not not nearly as much as it would in a regular season game because Golden State's just, again, they're just not focused on the regular season like we've talked about. Correct. And because they've won so many championships, they also know how to win. And they know yeah. how to win on the road. You're right. Like a regular season game you know, at Minnesota, they're not going to care about. Right. There's not. Well, and, and, and they took, you know – it was a weird approach because of how good they were at home, and and I, I again I don't know. Sometimes you wonder if that really has something is is really if there's anything to that or not, or if it's just kind of you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe the way that they approached road trips this year was just kind of a uh, let's just relax here and we'll get them at home. But anyway, I, I don't think so. I don't think that was as big a factor. I think they're just I think they're just a better team right now. They've got guys who have been there. Sacramento played so well in the first two games and, you know, just just didn't really didn't really play the same level of offense in the next couple of games. Golden State also, I think people forget too how good defensively Golden State's been when they've won their championships. Uh they have a way to really lock in on that side of the floor. And they're a veteran team, and you saw it last night, right? They know how to turn on that switch for defense. Right, they know how to turn it on, and one twenty-three to one sixteen win. They're now up three games to two. You like Golden State to finish this off in Game Six? Most and, likely, yeah. I mean, last chance to do it at home, and you know, teams again. Like I, like I, I've been kind of contradict because I don't think there's much to it, but I do think there's something to it, and still, it is an advantage to be at home for Golden State. So I, I do think. You might as well get it done in Game 6. You go back to Game 7 again. It's so funny how these seven-game series work because even though right now Golden State has all the momentum in the world and it feels like they're going to close this out, if they don't, then you immediately go back to feeling like Sacramento has an edge because they're going back home for Game Correct. 7. But So, yeah, I do expect Golden State to get it done in six games. They've seemed to turn on a switch. They're up three games to two now. The Grizzlies responded, like we said, well, 116-99 win. Morant, Bain combined for the 64 points. Bain went off for them. It was a nice response from Memphis. They were at home. Now they get to go back to L.A. I feel like LeBron is in, in AD are going to close it out. Yeah, it felt like a, a sluggish performance for the Lakers. Um, it felt, it but felt, we kind of saw that coming, right? And we even mentioned that. Mm-hmm. I mean... 
you know, they've got they've got older guys, and it's like hard to empty the tank all the time for them. And so they they pick their spots. I think and they know how to pace themselves. Right up three one. I think mm-hmm. they felt like you know it's not like they wanted to lose that game, but I think they probably said, hey, look, if we have a really hot shooting night, maybe we'll steal one. If not, we're going to go back to LA and focus on Game Six. Correct. I like the Lakers and the Warriors to advance, and that's going to be one heck of a Western Conference semifinals, by the way. Bunch of old men playing. (laughs) The other games last night, Knicks-Cavaliers. Cavs had a nice story. They were the favorite in this series, right? Before it began, they were the betting line favorite. That's your your, kind of your four or five matchup. Uh, New York's clearly the better team. And they proved it with the gentleman's sweep, winning four games to one last night, closing it out 106 to 95. Brunson, Barrett, they have so many guys that just contribute. Uh, Randall tweaking his ankle again, though, in the game gives you a little pause moving forward on just how good, just how deep of a run the Knicks can put together here. That said, their opponent in the next round, that is going to be an absolute filthy series. Because the Miami Heat, Jimmy Butler, the plays made in this game. The plays made in late in this game by Miami in particular involving Jimmy Butler were phenomenal. On the same hand, Dawson, Milwaukee had a meltdown. Like, they just... They had the lead going into the fourth quarter. They had some poor execution down the stretch. Uh, Not calling the timeout to advance the ball. And you're going, what? Like, for a team that is a veteran team as they are, with a veteran coach that have won a world championship in recent years, they played like the team that had to earn their way out of the play-in tournament. Not like the number one seed. It was a little stunning, some of the mishaps they had in last night's game. Yeah, they were a team that was supposed to be, like, I I know people will point to the Giannis injury, but they were a team that was supposed to be able to overcome an injury like that in a first-round series. And, you know, I think part of this goes to show you how difficult it is to, to keep teams locked in after championships. And now, they played great in the regular season. In the, in the years following the championship. So that's, you know, I think that, and that's usually the point you'd look at to, to where it's difficult to stay locked in, look Correct. at Golden State. But they just didn't get it done in the postseason the last couple of years. And so they're, they're in another situation where they're, they're still in a good spot, you know, moving forward with where the roster's at. And, and you, feel, you feel like there's going to be some changes, though, this Certainly. Off-season. They're going to shake a couple yeah. of things up, you'd imagine. And uh, that, I'll tell you, Boston and Philly probably looked at that. And now they're going to have to play each other before that, you know, before the point of reaching. That's why, again, now Miami, either Miami or the Knicks are going to be in the Eastern Conference, Conference Finals. Finals. So think about that. Um, but that, that Boston Philly series is now going to be even more interesting. They were outscored, Dawson. 32 to 16 in the fourth quarter and at it. home yeah at no, home not. to force overtime and then butler oh, and jimmy butler was the big difference in this series too and I mean, uh, he's been the big difference in every series that miami plays it seems like well I mean, he, he's he, this this last two three game run is is really one of the most you know i don't want to get too exaggerated with it but this is an all-time stretch that he just put together beat against the team he did 
with the team he has and the guys that he's missing, Jimmy Butler put together an all-time stretch right here, and it's not over. Now they get to move on, and they get to they get to rest a little bit, having cl- you know cleared this series out. Now, I guess the NBA sometimes starts their series a little earlier if both teams have already moved on. So since the Knicks handled their business as well, uh, maybe they start. You could see that early, but impressive. Butler ninety-eight points in two games to eliminate the one seed. Only three players in NBA playoff history have scored more points than Jimmy Butler in a two-game span. Elgin Baylor, Hall of Famer, probably the greatest player never to win a title. Jerry West, the logo, and Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Those are the only three. Those are the only three. An unreal playoff performance. And remember, Miami lost their first play-in game to the Atlanta Hawks. Like, the type of response, and they've lost Tyler Hero, and they lost Victor. They lost two key guys out of their, off of their team during this playoff series, and they still took down the one seed in five games. Think about that. Unreal. And you know what? Jimmy's been great. But you got 15 points from Kevin Love. You got 20 points from Bam. You got 22 points from Vincent. Everyone came off the bench and scored, including Kyle Lowry that gave you 10. The the thing that makes Miami so dangerous, and I know we got to hit a timeout here. They have guys that contribute. They 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 it's that Pat Riley model that Spolstra has has kept going. Where Everyone's bought in. Everyone's bought in with the Miami Heat. They have a guy that's a dog. They're well coached. We're going to get an Eastern Conference semifinals between the Knicks and the Heat with two really good coaches, two hard. We're talking kind of teams that get dirt down and dirty. They fight hard. Going to get some team basketball here in the Eastern Conference semifinals with the Knicks and the Heat, and it should be. An amazing one. The Bucks are bounced. Grizzlies and Kings, the 2-3 seed in the West, are on the verge of elimination as well. And we're not even through the first round of the playoffs. Amazing. we got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and company, Astros, ooh, sure does feel like they've turned a corner. We'll talk about that next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update. Presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. It sure does appear that the Houston Astros have turned a corner. Hunter Brown, boy, he's going to be a good one if he can stay healthy. Combined with two relievers for a two-hitter as the Astros shut out the Major League Best Tampa Bay Rays for the second straight game down in Tampa. one nothing win Wednesday night. They take the series. 
And their last three series, they took two or three from the Toronto Blue Jays. They swept the Atlanta Braves at Atlanta. And then they took two or three against the best team in baseball, shutting them out back-to-back days. I have one more Kevin Foote impression for this morning because I know he's not listening yet, so I feel like I can talk it's about glorious it. glorious morning. No, that cat, Hunter Brown, that cat's good. <laughs> he's good. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You don't know what I'm telling it's like, Kevin, we pay attention to baseball. We understand Hunter Brown's good. Brown improves to 3-0, had a career-high eight strikeouts, walked two in his seven innings. Nairs pitched a perfect eight. And then Ryan Presley, who, you know, had some had some issues early, worked a one, two, three, ninth inning for a second save of the season. Hunter Brown, 24 years old, made his big league debut last September after being called up from Sugarland, where he just dominated AAA. Became the first pitcher this season to have three starts of at least seven innings and no earned runs. Is that good? I feel like that's pretty good. Houston went 5-1 and one on a six-game trip that included a three-game sweep of Atlanta. The Astros also snapped the Rays' 14-game home winning streak to start the season, the best in Major League Baseball since 1901. Woo. Luis Garcia and three relievers limited the Rays' On Tuesday night, by the way, Tampa still leads the majors in scoring with 157 runs. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But this team feels like they've truly turned a corner. Bregman got an RBI, or was credited with the RBI, rather, when Ray shortstop. Wander Franco was charged with an error for misplaying a potential inning-ending double play grounder with runners on the corners in the first inning. Jeremy Pena singled and advanced a third on a pair of wild pitches before scoring. Astros second baseman Dubon extended his hitting streak to 20 games. Not bad for a guy who is the backup, a bench player, that people had question marks about. And look, He's going to go back to being a role player. He's going to be your backup infielder because he can play all the positions. He can go play the outfield as well. Use him as a designated hitter if you need to. By the way, the 20-game hitting streak, which occurred with a fifth-inning single off of Josh Fleming, is the longest by a Houston Astro player since Hunter Pence's 23-game streak back in 2011. I wasn't. I thought for sure Altuve would have had a streak in there that long, or even like Springer or somebody like that during that time. You had to go back to Hunter Pence, 2011. It's amazing. Dubon has 29 hits during his hitting streak. He had wait for it a total of 41 hits in 216 plate appearances with the Astros last year. So this has come out of nowhere. He seized the opportunity. The team needed him to step up. Everyone thought that Dubon was just a guy that they're going to have to bury at the bottom of the lineup, and yet he has stepped up in a big way for this team. Absolutely impressive performance by Dubon. Hitting streak continues, and more importantly, the Astros get the one nothing win. They get a day off before coming back home. In the Strohs, man, they look good. In the in the Rays, 
don't look like they're an unstoppable force. They still look great. And by the way, the American League West standings now, the Texas Rangers are 14 and 10. The Astros are 14 and 11. They're only a half game behind the Rangers. Hey, it's about to be May. Amazing how that worked out. And Dawson, you're new to the start of the Major League Baseball season around here, but I've had to do this for four years now, and it's become a tradition. Astro fans freaking out early, telling them, calm down. Your team always does this. They always start off slow. They're going to be fine. Just wait. This is, this is a tradition we do here on RP3 and Company, just so you know, because we'll have to do it again next year, by the way. <laughs> when they start off slow and they're around 500 and people go, what's going on? Oh, and you go, calm down. Just calm down. I want to briefly, while we have a minute here to talk about the raging Cajun baseball team, uh, at Northwestern state, n- really no match for the Louisiana raging Cajuns. Second midweek game of the week. Second straight win as well for Matt Deggs' team. They get the job done as they clobber the poor demons from Natchitoches. The fighting Mr. Greens, as I like to call them. (laughs) In a 15-3 win. UL put up crooked numbers in the second, third, fourth, sixth, and eighth. Connor Higgs. Boy, he has been talking about guys stepping up. That's exactly what he's done. Given the opportunity, he has stepped up in a big way for Matt Deggs' team. What'd you think of how Jackson pitched last night? Once again, it's against Northwestern State, but five strikeouts in the first two innings. Yeah, step in the right direction. Um, game two of Matt Deggs' new pitching plan went to went according to plan again, so that's, uh, that's interesting at least, although I don't know if the first one went fully according to plan, but it did go better than the weekend went so uh, he's sticking to it because he started his Friday you know his again formerly the Friday starter of last week uh the first game and then he starts another weekend starter his Saturday starter in Jackson Neza so you know we'll still probably see those guys start the games but I don't know how long they're gonna go but um yeah I mean this is how you'd like it to be the offense just really woke up and I mean Northwestern State you know a better than 500 team, both in Southland play and overall. Obviously, not the you know not not as good as a lot of the Sun Belt teams you're going to face. But uh, that was a good win, good statement, and uh, feels like they got back on the right track in these two games. But now you got a bit bit of a different opponent coming in. Debo had a good game, right? Debars went out there three for four on the night. I know once again, I know it's against Northwestern State, but if you can get him going, we've talked about it before. He's kind of the guy that stirs the drink, so to speak, for this team. Yeah, and Veyon had three hits, and everybody in the starting lineup had at least one hit. So offensively, that was what you've been waiting on, and you're hoping to carry that over. You get some confidence now heading into the key three-game series this weekend against Coastal Carolina Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Don't forget the Sunday game is at 10 o'clock now. Okie dokie. <laughs> Okie dokie. So... Good win for Matt Deggs' team. Back-to-back midweek wins over Southern and Northwestern State. They look to get their confidence back and see what they can do now at home against Coastal Carolina. It's not a must-win series, but, man, it could go a long way 
for this team, this team's confidence heading down the stretch because they still have series against Texas State, at Southern Miss, at ULM. That's all still on deck before they have to get ready for the Sunbelt Conference Tournament over in Montgomery where they play that tournament at the home of the Biscuits. It's the home of the Biscuits, Dawson. Yeah, quickly, I know we're really on a break here, so that's my fault. But uh, the Biscuits, like, I just wanted, I don't know if you knew, like, the, I knew that the Montgomery Biscuits were a team for, you know, my whole life, essentially. I didn't realize until, like, a couple years ago that it was actually, like, a biscuit, like, like, a, like a breakfast pastry. And, like, I don't know what I thought the mascot was. I just never looked at it closely. I just assumed, you know how a lot of times names, I just assumed it was in reference to something else. I don't know. But no, it's like a, you know, like a biscuit, like you eat for breakfast. So uh, that was like when I remember looking at the logo and going, wait a minute, that is literally a biscuit. So that was something. That, you've, uh, you've made my day. I'm glad. Thank you. I'm glad. Thank you. We had to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to hear from Mickey Loomis on the eve of the draft. What did he have to say? And we'll unveil our poll question of the day. That's all coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update. Presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. in a concise manner, but I would say, look, we're looking for the best player that we can get, best football player we can get. Um, and that encompasses a lot of things. It, it's not just about ability. It's about about the makeup of the player. Does he fit our culture? Is he going to be great in our locker room? All the, you know, does he have leadership skills? It's all these other things outside of um, ability, physical ability. Um, so I, I think that's that's an important part of it in in terms of who we're drafting. It's man, let's get somebody we love, and uh, that may be at a position that we need, and hopefully it is. But it may be at a position that we already have as a strength. Mickey Loomis, just being Mickey. You know, we're going to draft someone we love, which has always been their case. And look, if it's at a position of need, great. If it's not, that's okay, too. What we've talked about over and over again, Dawson, they draft, they got five or six guys that they target in the first round or first two rounds that they really, really love, that they've interviewed, that they've done their homework on, that they say these are the guys that are the best fits for our team. And if those guys aren't available, you know what they do? Best player available. It's what they've always done. It's what they've always done. This is who they are. This is who they are. They still do follow somewhat of a prototype, right? We know the build and body type that they usually draft on the defensive line. We know they love the RAS scores. They, they, they live by that, particularly Jeff Ireland, who's part of the brain trust there in the Saints front office. And we know they traditionally go after O-line, D-line, DB, wide receiver. Those are the four positions they value 
four position groups rather that they value more than any other position with their first two round picks. Once you get past the first two rounds, then you know they go all over the place. But their draft board, D-line, O-line, DB, wide receiver. That's what it's always been. That's what they value in the first two rounds. And they're going to have a slew of great opportunities to draft great guys in those position groups if they choose to in the first two rounds. And we know Mickey loves, loves trading up. (laughs) And he loves it. And he was asked, does having eight picks, because they have eight total picks in this year's draft, does that give you the flexibility to move on up? Yeah, I think, I think uh, yeah, it does give us some flexibility. Um, you know, I always feel like if you have picks in the latter part of the draft, it gives you the opportunity to bump up. If you have, you know, a lot of picks in the top half of the draft, then it allows you to move way up if you want to. Um, I wouldn't say we have the ammunition to move way up. We don't. But I think we do have... Um, if we decided to bump up a little bit, that you know that opportunity, um, we'd have enough resources to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just don't think he thinks about the draft the way a lot of GMs think about it too, which I like. Not. Like it's it's good to have unique, but like <laughs> his first thought of having a lot of high picks in the draft is like, well, that great. Now I can move way up. Where I think a lot of teams would be like, oh, we'll get a lot of good players out of this. They're like, well, no, I'll just use all those to get the guy I really want. Mickey is held in check a little bit by Jeff Ireland. And ever since Ireland joined, their draft philosophy tweaked a little bit. Because Jeff, you know, Jeff was a big architect of the 2017 draft. Where they drafted every pick was a home run, right? Those are the type of drafts that come around once in a generation, right? But they do have a philosophy. But Mickey's very, very honest, right? He's just like, eh. I mean, I can't go all the way up into the top 10 like I want to. But well, we can move up a little bit. That tells you, and we've been talking about this the whole time, in the last mock drafts you and I did, I was aggressive and traded up with Jacksonville, moved up five spots. I could see them doing something like that. I could see them moving up five to seven spots tonight and being in the early 20s instead of being on the back end of the 20s. Yeah, and I also do wonder... I don't know, but I do wonder if there's a little bit of mind games involved with his comments like that. Now, I guess he wouldn't have to because teams know that they'll go up. and But at least putting it in the heads of some of the teams in front of them going, man, Mickey did say they could move up a few spots. Maybe we ought to go up and, and try and force other teams' hands. I don't Again, I don't know if that's his, his well, prime motivation, but I think there might be a little bit of that there's, involved there, there's, well. there's always gamesmanship involved in these things, right? I mean, this, yeah. So you're wanting to change narratives and, and – you're wanting to force other people's hands. I think Mickey does – they always do a really good job of – they know before, like right now, they, they've already got this locked up. They know exactly who on the board above them is going to be a trading partner. They already know that. This is not draft day where you're manning the phone calls the day of trying to find somebody. No, no, no. this is – we know what teams we have relationships with. We know what teams we can trade up with. We know what it's going to take. They already know that. So they'll watch the board – And once again, they have five to six guys that they always love, right? And Dawson, they're going to look at that board, and if they start seeing a run, let's say they like one of those pass rushers, or let's say they like one of those interior offensive linemen, whatever it may be, and they start seeing some runs or someone trades up and then selects one of those guys, 
in that position group, then Mickey and his team are going to know, okay, there may be a run here on pass rusher. There may be a run here on an interior offensive lineman. There may be a run here on defensive tackle. Okay, other guys are going to try to jump in here. Let's pull the trigger, and let's go get our guy, and let's not mess around because they don't. That's just been always been their philosophy. You know, we talk about what are some musts for this team. O-line depth, D-line depth, could use another safety more than likely, and I think that he could use another wide receiver. But Mickey talked about what he believes the musts are for the Saints in this year's draft. Um, I think there's some things that we'd like to have. I don't know that I would call any of them musts. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job in this offseason of taking – uh, a lot of those musts and, and turning them into wants or needs uh, in our vernacular. You and I talked about this a lot. They're in a position of power because they made sure to go out during free agency and do what? They addressed defensive tackle. Now, those guys may not be all pros that they brought in, but they addressed defensive tackle. They addressed defensive back. They addressed running back. They even restructured some deals for wide receiver. They took care of a lot of different things, and of course they took care of quarterback. So they don't have to be desperate here, Dawson. They don't have to be desperate. And anytime you're in that position where you don't have to be desperate, it's a great thing, and that's where the Saints find themselves. They don't have to be desperate. And that's exactly where you want to be. Poll question of the day. Who is the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints history? Oh, yeah. Well, we, yeah, we decided to go with positivity here, I see. Huh? <laughs> How about old Russell, the kicker, taking 11th overall back in 1979? Alvin Tolles, linebacker who, man, he just didn't do nothing. Sean Knight, Ooh, that's a blast from the past for you. An old Jonathan Sullivan, who was the sixth overall pick out of Georgia. His career flamed out so much when Sean Payton got there, he traded him to New England, and New England gave the Saints back a wide receiver, and both Bill Belichick and Sean Payton cut the guys they traded for. They were like, done, done. These guys are no good. Go vote on. Our poll question of the day, who's the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints history? you got four options. Go vote, leave your comments, and we'll share some of those early comments coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station than going to the dentist. Take that, dental hygiene. This is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, who's the first? Who is the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints history? Right now, 41% of you say the kicker slash punter. <laughs> that was taken in 1979. Oh, Russell. 29% of you say Sean Knight. 24% say Jonathan Sullivan. 6% of you say Alvin Tolles. Let's get to some quick comments. Ralph on Twitter says, it's got to be Russell. 
Who picks a punter kicker with the 11th pick? The Saints, that's who. Only four field goals made in four years, and he sucked at punting too. Plus, he was a jerk off the field. Let's hope tonight's pick doesn't end up in the Hall of Shame one day. The Raiders are also interested in those types of moves. <laughs> yes, they are. Hey, Jano worked out pretty well. I mean, Jano was a... Not for what he cost them. No, not what they cost them, though. He also says, but Sean Knight deserves some recognition. In three seasons with the Saints and Broncos, he had, count it, zero tackles. Zero tackles. Only stat ever recorded, that was a fumble recovery. That is a feat in itself. Steve has a write-in vote. Salty Steve. Leslie Kelly. He never started a game for the Saints. He did sit the bench for a couple years. JPK, the OD, says, Sean Knight's career. Saints in 87. Broncos in 88. Cardinals in 89. Sacramento surge in 1991. 31 games, one start. Only official recorded stat is a fumble recovery. In the Saints defense, they cut bait after one season and traded him. Also, the 1987 draft was horrible top to bottom. Go look. And he shared a gift from draft day. I want my picks back. If, if this was just a modern era question, I think Stefan Anthony would be in the conversation as well, right? He had the one good year as a rook. I, I, a good decent a year. Yeah, I, yeah, I already yeah. discussed this with Kevin Foote and others. But modern era, at least. A modern era, he'd yeah. be on there. Yeah, if we were doing anything past, like, you know, 88, he'd definitely be on the list. But he did have a decent year. Because I brought that up to Foote when I consulted him on the poll question. He's like, he had the one good year, and then he was he was awful. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Who's the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints history? Hour one in the books. Hour number two, more draft talk. Randy Cross, three-time Super Bowl champion, college football Hall of Famer, will join us to kick it off. That's next right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything. Everything gonna be alright this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Welcome back to RP3 and company here on this Thursday edition of the show. Tonight, the NFL Draft. That's right. First round action will begin. And an event that used to take place, what essentially was a meeting room at a hotel all on one day, is now a three-day event where more than a quarter of a million people are going to be in attendance in Kansas City for this marquee event. And to talk about this year's draft and to talk about his own draft experience is... Our old friend, the man who was a three-time Super Bowl champion, a second-round draft pick out of UCLA in the 1976 draft by the San Francisco 49ers. He's also in the College Football Hall of Fame. Randy Cross joins us now. Randy, good morning, brother. It's been a while. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. It's going to be a pretty pretty exciting, I think, uh, weekend for a lot of young men and a lot of disappointments the first day or two. And a lot of I told you so's down the line uh, in days two and two and three, but uh, it's part of what makes this draft so fun to watch. You were drafted back in 1976, which is you know the draft experience was wildly different then than it is now. Did you ever think you'd see the day where expected 300,000 people are going to go to Kansas City to watch the draft over three days? Yeah. 
Well, it's, it's, it's what the NFL had in mind when they made it an in-person kind of experience. I know when it was in Radio City Music Hall for all those years, it was always a pretty amazing thing in New York, but that's a limited venue. Now going to some of these outdoor spots, it, it just takes the lid off. And Kansas City is a great place for it. You know, people can uh, hopefully get some good weather. They'll get some great barbecue. And uh, they'll get a, uh, a chance. I don't know if you've ever seen that particular Union Station, but uh, it's a great complex and a really nice area of downtown Kansas City. And they'll just take over that whole thing if they get that kind of crowd. What was your draft experience like when you were selected in the second round? Um, I don't know. Kind of like comparing um, a Tesla to... Fred Flintstone driving his uh, pedal-powered uh, <laughs> car in the Flintstones. Uh, I, it, it was completely different. You talked to a lot of scouts. And you saw some front office people. You know, you, everybody had a pro day. And after the season was over, you know, you'd see some guys around the building watching tape, and they'd want to talk to you. And you do you do some of that, but uh, I mean, the first time I ever even thought about getting drafted was spring ball after my junior year. I ran into the great Gil Brandt, and uh, he pulled me aside and he says, "You seem to be taking this rather casually." And I looked at him and I said, "No, not really. I just haven't really given it much thought." And he looked at me like I was from Mars or something. And he says, "What do you mean much thought?" He goes, "You're going to get drafted in the first round or two. And I said, oh, okay, uh, that's great to know. I, and so that was the first time I really thought about, you know, the NFL. And when I was draft day, I was sitting in my parents' kitchen uh, at a chair underneath the telephone on the wall. And I'm talking about one of those phones that had like that 20-foot privacy cord so you could pull it into your bedroom and talk on the phone. And <laughs> it was uh, a little, uh, little archaic but sat around there for a good while until I got called in the second round. We're talking with Randy Cross. He was a star at UCLA, second-round draft pick in the 1976 draft by the San Francisco 49ers. He would go on to be a three-time Super Bowl champion, a three-time first-team All-Pro selection, and a three-time Pro Bowler. He joins us here at RP3 and Company. You know, we spend so much time talking about quarterbacks. We're expected to have maybe five guys selected in the first round, and so many of these guys struggle. Peyton Manning's, the Andrew Lux, the Joe Burrows, those, those guys are few and far between. Many of these guys end up being just journeymen. What's the biggest factor for you as a guy who played with some legendary quarterbacks, some of the greatest of all time? Why do so many, so many of these guys from college, Randy, struggle when they go to the NFL? Well, it's a different game. Um, the simplest way to, to say it is it's much more complicated and you're playing against adults. You know, you're, you're playing against people who don't have attention lapses. You're playing against people that are consistent. You're playing against people that are so much better than anybody you played in at that last level. And they're playing in systems that are designed specifically to confuse you. Not the linemen, not the receivers, you, that guy behind the center. So, you know, I, I came to peace a long time ago that the draft is the lifeblood of the NFL. But I also came to terms a long time ago, that the draft is what I've always called a swag. It's a sophisticated, wild-ass guess. And there's no position that's more, and it doesn't just personify that more than the quarterback position. And this year's a great example. 
We've got offensive linemen. We've got defensive linemen. We've got edge rushers. We've got cornerbacks. We got all kinds of amazing talents, including a kid like Bijan Robinson that in past years they might be the first pick off the board or Jalen Carter at defensive tackle. But we've become so quarterback centric that you'll spend the whole time people talking about, you know, these guys have got to be the top, you know, four of the first five guys off the board. Well, if they're four of the five guys off the board, how come some when they have ratings of overall ratings of players and how the quality of these players, there's only a couple of those quarterbacks show up in the top 10, top 15, top 20 in some cases. You know, some can go down as low as in the top 40s or so before you hit this fourth guy. Um, Why is that? Well, it's because it's an inexact science. It's because everybody wants to make that. This year they're all looking for that Brock Purdy. They want something for nothing. They want the guy that isn't going to cost them much that's going to be a great starter. Well, you know what? That happens, as we already know, about once every 20 to 25 years. The, the, the league gets that kind of amnesia and, and just misses on a guy like that. And the other thing that, I, that stands out to me, and I'll always argue this, Randy, is you look at the guys that can make the transition and that succeed at that position. They go to teams that are tailor-made, right? I mean, always think of Tom Brady. He wasn't the starter. He wasn't the franchise savior. He sat behind Drew Bledsoe. They had a great defense. They had very good offensive linemen. They had good running backs and a great kicker, maybe the greatest kicker of all time. You look at Aaron Rodgers. He sat behind Brett Favre and learned. Patrick Mahomes sat and learned and went to a team that was already kind of built. Jalen Hurts the same way. I mean, over and over again, the NFL shows you that the guys that succeed and can make that transition are the guys that aren't forced to be the franchise savior right off the bat, yet so many teams overdraft the quarterbacks and make them the savior, and within three years, they're a backup. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a reason Carolina's drafting where they are. There's a reason Houston's drafting there. There's a reason India's drafting there. There's a, there's a reason Seattle's drafting there. They've made some mistakes. And they've let other positions go, which has cost them in, in, from a record standpoint. Um, plus, then again, there's teams in the top of this draft like the Arizona Cardinals or the Detroit Lions or the Atlanta Falcons, for instance. Um, they're drafting there because, you know what? <laughs> they just do it all the time because they find a way to screw up and not be very good. And then they mess up on the pick. And, and it's, it's, it's sort of a perpetuating self-perpetuating thing. But the quarterbacks that sit are the ones, in my mind, that have almost the advantage. But, you know, general managers don't have that kind of time, generally speaking. Head coaches don't have that kind of time. You know, it's awful nice of you if you're going to – if if I'm the guy that's going to be a head coach there in two or three years, nice of you to draft my quarterback, but he ain't doing you any good. You mentioned – Bijan Robinson, some people think that he may be the best prospect of any of them, yet we know that the NFL has devalued that position over the last 10 years. Do you believe Bijan Robinson could be the, the best player in this draft? Um, you, you, can, you can throw a blanket over a handful of guys. You can make that argument for Jalen Carter. You can make that argument for Will Anderson. You can make that argument, you know, in that case for – let's say the best edge rusher, you know, Nolan Smith. So, yeah, 
you know, I, I look at this draft as being one where you're going to pick up guys. And, and B. John Robinson, I think, is a fantastic example of a guy that won't go probably in the top five, but is light years ahead. I mean, I've seen mock drafts over the course of the last, you know, couple of weeks. So I went on CBSSports.com that had Bijan Robinson going to the San Diego Chargers at 22. If he goes to at 22, the Chargers get to the Chargers, the Chargers get another LT. And they're going to be hell in the West. There's no way that guy should lie. He should not even be they, – they, he shouldn't be out of the top ten. But he might be. So because of what you said about them devaluing the position, but – I think you're willing to, the league should be willing to make an exception of guys that come along. And he's one of those guys that can run, he can catch, he can block, he can do all the things you want. I want to talk about a position you know well, and of course, offensive line. You played guard and center. The interior, I think, is an undervalued position. If you don't have good players at the guard spots and a good center, I don't care how talented your quarterback is, I don't care how talented your pass catchers are on the outside, you're not going to do anything, plain and simple. Who are some guys in this year's draft that played your old position that kind of stand out to you for this draft? Well, O-line-wise, there's a lot of guys that are tackles that could dabble at guard at the next level. You know, because let's, let's be honest, being an offensive lineman in the NFL now is a function of being 6'5 and about three and a quarter to 340. I mean, they're, they're getting pretty big. But, you know, Peter Skaronsky out of Northwestern is that kind of a kid, Broderick Jones. Out of Georgia is that kind of a kid. Darnell Wright out of Tennessee is going to be that kind of a player. Uh, Osiris Torrance, who's out of Florida by way of Louisiana the year before, one of those transfer types. Um, that's an example. And then you got some guys, you know, I think later in the draft, probably in the, you know, in those high mid 20s or so round wise. I'll give you an example of a guy that I think could play 10 to 15 years in the league, be versatile, and be really good at two positions, and that's Steve Avila out of TCU. He's going to be a guard and a center. So specific to what I did in the NFL, I think Steve Avila is that kind of a player. And if you want that kind of a player that can give you that kind of versatility, that's the kind of kid you draft. Randy, thank you so much for your time, brother. Enjoy the draft, and we'll talk to you soon, my friend. All right, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Ah, uh, poll question of the day. Who's the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints history? We got four good ones for you here. Four good ones. Was it Russell the kicker slash punter? <laughs> Taking as the 11th overall pick in 1979. 
out of Texas. Was it Alvin Tolles? Was it Sean Knight? Or was it my personal favorite, Jonathan Sullivan, who was taken six overall? Ugh. Hart says, am I allowed to do a write-in vote? I know I may get hate for this, but how about Ricky Williams? Literally lost all draft capital for one and a half years on someone who was a superstar only when he left our franchise. Besides final year, I'm not bitter still, I swear. I think people forget about Ricky. And and James Mesh brought this up yesterday as well. Well, what about Ricky Williams because of how much you had to give up for him? Um, Ricky was a star when he was in New Orleans. That was always the case. Like... I know he was only in New Orleans for the three years, but he was a star in New Orleans. And yes, he was the number fifth overall pick in the 1999 draft. And yes, he became an all-pro and a pro bowler and the NFL rushing leader later in his career, in particular with the Dolphins, after he left New Orleans and was shipped out. And I get that because of what Ditka gave up for him, and no one's ever going to live up to that because, well, who is? But he rushed for 1,000 yards and then 1,200 yards, back-to-back seasons, averaged four yards a carry, and had eight and six rushing touchdowns those two years. So it's not like he was garbage. Uh, So I know we remember things, that that Ricky wasn't very good, but Ricky was a thousand yard running back in two of his three years with the New Orleans Saints. And back in the late nineties, early two thousands, if your running back gave you a thousand yards, that was considered a successful season. So and he also caught forty four passes his second year and sixty passes his third year, which was a career high. So his last season in New Orleans, he had 1,245 yards rushing and 511 yards receiving. That's 1,800 all-purpose yards. Is that bad? Dawson will get back to us here shortly. He's uh, departed the room for a little while. He had to handle some matters. I was reading Stefan Anthony's stats, but um, no, Ricky was that. No, that is not bad. Answer your question. Yes, he became a better running back when he went to Miami. And yes, his career is an interesting one, a fascinating one. But Ricky was not garbage when he was in New Orleans. He wasn't Jonathan Sullivan. Right. He wasn't Knight who didn't record a tackle in a career. I mean, you know, 1,200 yards rushing, 500 yards receiving. I'm pretty sure the Saints would have taken that last year. Yeah. So I, I we, we we remember Ricky differently than you know than we should. I, I get it because you gave up a bunch of picks, but I understand that portion of it, but uh no. Ton just just says who question mark. <laughs> I'm not for sure. Who? Our guy Todd looked at that poll question and goes, I don't know any of those guys. 
that's his comment of saying they're all terrible. Just just terrible. Just terrible. Cajun fan, Saints trading their first-round pick for a quarterback to the Colts who took Bubba Smith with that pick <laughs> was not good enough to beat out Billy Kilmer for the starting job. Yet, they've made some bad moves over the years. That is without a doubt. Who is it for you? I'm going to be real with you. I never saw any of those guys play. So uh, I don't have a strong opinion on those four. In my, re- you know, again, in the modern era, I would say Stefan Anthony of the guys that I grew up watching play. No reaction to that? I just, you know, I mean, th- this man has two degrees, but yet hates history. No, I, I look, I enjoy the man, the man hates history. We, I'm telling you, I haven't quite. Look, it's on my list. It's probably going to be coming up soon, but I haven't quite rewatched the 1979 season yet. I'm still trying to locate. <laughs> you have to top out the top tapes. Top out. There's no excuse. You know why? Why is that? You have access to the Saints walking encyclopedia that is Kevin Foot. Yeah, I should just sit down with him and kind of have him visually explain just, it to me. And, he, and my friend, he will. And he would be glad to do so. I do know they were cheated by an official who was either blind or senile, according to uh, his exact words. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yes, Kevin it, it, Kevin has everything right up here in the old cranium about the Saints history. He can break it down for you. Now, Sullivan was a guy that you're just like – who are they going to go with here? And the, and it's one of those drafts where you look back and you go, oh, what what would you do that for? What would you do that for? Why, oh, why did you do that for? And a lot of for me, it's it's Sullivan. Uh, some people say Peyton Turner is a candidate depending on what he does this season, which is not necessarily untrue. All right? It's not. It's not untrue. But Saints fan that year, give you a little history here, that Jonathan Sullivan was drafted. Terrell Suggs. That's who Saints wanted to have. Saints fans were like, ooh, Terrell Suggs. And the Saints that year, Dawson sat at number 17. No way that Terrell Suggs is going to fall to them. Then Magic, they traded up, and Saints fans went crazy. They're trading up to go get Terrell Suggs. What is happening? Saints fans thought they're getting Terrell Suggs. Nope. Jonathan Sullivan instead. (laughs) It's just one of those. (laughs) That's courtesy of our guy Nick Fondo. (laughs) Who remembered? I remember calling my friend on the phone, and he was calling me at the same time. It was giving a busy signal because, you know, back in the day, if the lines got crossed, the house phones just went busy. I was so hyped. And then Jonathan Sullivan ruined my life. And what's funny is that he was one of the first guys Sean Payton was like, yeah, we're purging this guy. All right. Like, he didn't even make it through training camp. 
didn't even make it through training camp with Sean the very first year. Sean shipped him out to New England. Bill Belichick ended up cutting him as well. And the wide receiver they sent back in that trade, Sean cut. It was like a it was like a a a a a back backroom deal where they're like, hey, I got this guy I really don't care for and I want to get rid of him. I got one of those guys too. Want to trade? Sure. <laughs> No, look, I mean, that was the beginning when I was five and six years old at the time. I mean, I was... Five I, or six years old? No, and I mean, look, I was I was a little more locked in the NFL than the average five-year-old. I'll certainly say that. But <laughs> I will say I don't think my depth of knowledge of the game at that time kind of stretched to the end of the you know depth chart in the linebacker room. Um, I was a little more focused on Aaron Brooks and Michael Lewis and those types of guys. But I do remember uh, a couple of years of the Jim Hazlitt era. That was the beginning of you know me being old enough and to uh, functionally watch sporting events. So, um, yeah, that wasn't a great time. And then Sean came in, and things got better. The man did not play a single down for the Patriots. I'm sorry, he was not cut in training camp. I thought I remember. Sean cut the wide receiver in the trade. He was on the roster but didn't play a single down and then was waived that October. Bill was like, I've had enough of you. Get out of my face. Get out of my face, Jonathan Sullivan. Ugh. What a guy. What a guy. What a guy. One forced fumble and a one and a half sacks in his illustrious career. Can you imagine being the sixth overall pick and lasting in the NFL like three and a half years? That's it. That's it. You're done. You're done. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. We'll continue to try to educate and give history lessons to Dawson. Up next, Chrissy Freud, quarterback guru. We're going to break down the five projected guys that are expected to be drafted tonight in the NFL draft. That's next, right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The NFL draft is tonight. It's going to be held in Kansas City. More than a quarter of a million people are expected to be in Kansas City there around Union Station starting tonight through Saturday for the NFL Draft. It has become a huge spectacle. Five quarterbacks are expected to be selected in tonight's first round. And to break down the QB prospects is the person we trust more than anyone else when it comes to quarterback analysis. She is Air Raid certified. She covers the SEC, the AAC, and the NFL Draft. Our old friend Chrissy Freud joins us now. Chrissy, good morning to you. Happy Draft Day. You too. Thank you for having me on again. So I want to break down these prospects, but I want to ask you a question before we dive into that. And I've long stated this on the air, that so many of these guys – that don't work out, that are selected by NFL teams, that end up being guys that are essentially journeymen, that they would be better off and their careers probably would go a different way 
if teams didn't overdraft them. Because we see it so many times where guys go to a spot where they can be the backup and learn. Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City, Jalen Hurts in Philly, Tom Brady in New England, so forth and so forth. And so many of these franchises are trying to find their savior that they overdraft the quarterback position. And then they go to a team where they don't have the weapons they need. They don't have the offensive line they need. They don't have a competent defense. What do you make of that that thought? Yeah, I definitely think that there's some merit to that. I mean, the one thing that I will say is I've I've had this conversation with quarterbacks before is if they get drafted too uh, too late, like I mean, the majority of the guys that are between like the fifth and seventh round and then the uh, priority undrafted free agent signings, they find themselves in a hard place because um, the team that drafts them typically is not setting out to build around them, and it's kind of hard for them to break through that. But then. On the other side of the token, the guys that are drafted super early that still need to develop that get thrown into the fire too early and then um, have super high expectations and don't have a really a chance to slide into backup role and learn and it's kind of do or die, then they find themselves in a similar situation in a, a different way. So it's almost as if the sweet spot is between the second and the fourth round for those guys that kind of just need more time um, in, a, in a team, in a place where they don't have what they need and the pressure is really mounted. Of the quarterback prospects that so many of us are, have been focused on, who's the one that has the biggest question mark, in your opinion, as someone who knows quarterbacks better than anyone? I would say Anthony Richardson. And honestly, I mean, that's why quarterback rankings are so hard is because, and I've told people this before, is that there's about three different ways to do it. And so the way that I feel like most people do it is um, in a, a predictive manner, as in you have to put such and such here because everyone else is doing so, and then if you put them too far below, then you look like you're not credible, even though you may be right and have all the reasons in the world. And then the next way to do it is to do it the way to where it's based off purely of what you think and purely off of your methods um, and what you see that's been proven. And then there's the way of doing it based off of uh, based off of ceiling and then based off of floor and then deciding how much you want to lean into what you've already seen and how much you want to lean into hypotheticals. Because, I mean, if you lean purely into what you see and what's been established, then you have a game manager at number one that probably has a relatively low ceiling and a really high floor, which is not necessarily true. And so then you find yourself with Anthony Richardson, and I put him, I think he deserves to be in the spots between four and six, I think, in the rankings because you have someone who you don't want to put him too low because I remember being at the Manning Pass much he turned heads with just the physical tools that he brings to the table and just what he could be if he was just purely developed as a passer, which he's made some strides in this offseason but was really just overall inaccurate during the season. So um, when you look at Anthony Richardson, I think he brings a lot of really good things to the table. It's just a question of how much can he develop that raw talent but if he does develop it he's got an incredibly high ceiling and will instantly be one of the nfl's best prospects and i think that he's already um in my opinion better than a malik willis would be and has a higher ceiling than, a, than malik willis even would have and so if he capitalizes on that um you've got someone who's who's really really good and in the case of anthony who you know, he had a sensational combine, right? I mean, he just tore it up, mm -hmm. and people were like, well, his measurables are comparable to, say, Cam Newton, but Cam Newton dominated college football for that one season when he won the Heisman and won a national title, 
Anthony didn't, and he, you know, he has the accurate struggles. And I know the Florida wide receivers didn't help him out because they had a ton of drops. So how do you, when you're doing this kind of analysis, how do you balance a guy's potential, the physical gifts that he has, compared to what you see on tape with the inaccuracies and some of the poor decision making? Yeah, I did things a little bit differently this year because I think that you do have to give some credit um, to to the ceiling and to the physical tools. I think there is something uh, to be said about that because, I mean, even if one thing that I've always said is just because the quarterback has not done something yet does not mean that he can't do it or just because the quarterback has not been asked to do X, Y, and Z, especially when it comes to the air rate guys, which is the opposite end of the, end of the spectrum, doesn't mean that they can't do it whenever they're called upon um, by someone else. So. I write about the way that he's been working on his mechanics in the offseason. I think that he's been putting up just a lot of effort to fine-tune that. So I think that if he can do that, that it's going to make a big difference. But, but yeah, I think he was up against some really big some really big odds at Florida. Not to say that other quarterbacks haven't faced the same situation and been a bit more um, successful. But I think that whenever we look at what he was up against and kind of what he dealt with, that it was kind of a tricky situation and that he really is, has not had time um, to develop with the proper amount of end-game reps as I think that he should at this point. We're talking with Chrissy Freud from Insight Sports Advisor. She covers the college football and the NFL draft. She joins us here on RP3 and Company. All right, so we talked about Anthony Richardson, who I think is probably the, the most polarizing prospect of the guys projected to be in the first round. Another guy that's got some very polarizing reactions is Will Levis. He, a lot of reports this week, which I don't know if you can trust, you know, has him as possibly the second guy taken off the board. Uh, a lot of people say, hey, you know, which Will Levis are you going to get? Are you going to get the guy from two years ago or are you going to get the guy from last year? Uh, what do you see when you study the tape on Will Levis? What are his strengths and what is what are his weaknesses? I think it comes down to inconsistency and lower body mechanics. I, I don't think that's something that he ever fully um, corrected. And I mean, we see some good things as far as like what we talked about earlier, as far as like what he brings to the table on the ground and his physicality um, as a runner, a really hard guy to tackle whenever he gets moving. Um, and I think that he did progress a lot as a pure traditional quarterback, and he has experience playing that kind of Taysom Hill role as the Lion at Penn State. Uh, which, I mean, people have tried to replicate that. It hasn't exactly worked, but, it, but what I'm trying to say here is it's a really big toolbox um, that he can use in a lot of different ways in the NFL. So um, I think he's got a, a really good arm. I think that he uh, has a, a good release. I think he can do things off-platform and obviously get things done uh, with his legs. So it's another one of those guys that his ceiling is sky high. Um, we've heard a lot of rumors about, the, just really within the past like three weeks, about, you know, Will, Will Levis is rising or now Will Levis is falling because of all these things. I feel like it's something different every single day. So the whole thing about how the Panthers taking him number one, I absolutely don't see that happening at all. Uh, but I do think that this is the quarterback that it, that should be off the board uh, by the middle of the first round based off of what's gone around. Are you buying all of this chatter about C.J. Stroud for the longest time? He was in the running to be the number one overall pick. People thought he was the safe, one of the safest picks at the quarterback position. He's got great accuracy. He played in you know in a big conference, and then you know the 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 score gets leaked, and people are kind of losing their mind about that. Uh, are you buying that C.J. Stroud is going to be falling tonight? And what do you think his biggest strength is? What do you think his weakness may be in his game? Um, you know, I mean, I feel like there's 
a lot of things um, that come out about a player that that really just don't hold a lot of value. I feel like within the next, like, um, I would say, like, the three to five days ahead of the draft, there always seems to be something like that, um, like the whole thing about the Manning Passing Academy that, that happened. I mean, it it does kind of make you question some maturity things, and I also think at the same time that these things kind of lack context sometimes, and kind of what do these things truly mean at the end of the day. So I don't know. I mean, I think that if he were to fall at all, it's not anywhere outside of the top five. So um, I, I still think that he'll be one of the first three quarterbacks off the board. I think that he certainly deserves to go ahead of Will Levis based off of what he's he's shown on tape and kind of the rumors that have gone around about everyone in those in those top five prospects at quarterback. And people, I don't know, I think it, it may be the Justin Fields factor where they think of C.J. Stroud, and I think wrongly that, oh, he's this dual-threat guy. He's actually more of a pocket passer, correct? Yeah, and I think that there's um, just kind of been this this notion. I mean, a lot of people like to put the top five quarterbacks and then label them as dual-threat. I don't really know why, but it seems like it's something that's that's happened. I think it's just because of the modern era that there's kind of this notion that quarterbacks are supposed to be able um, to run the ball as well and to be a factor in uh, just the ground game. And so I think that people have developed this expectation that in order to be in the top five, you have to be able to make a huge impact there. And the reality of it is that you don't. Um, and C.J. Stroud is one of those quarterbacks that, is, that has proven that. So um, I think that it comes down to, I mean, if you can't move that well, which I think that he moves well enough, if you are a really good mental processor and a very accurate passer, that at that at the end of the day trumps all. And I think that he has that, and he's always uh, naturally had that, and it's only developed as his career has gone on. Bryce Young has all the tools. He has the vision. He knows how to read defenses. He's accurate. He's got a good enough arm. But the whole thing about Bryce is he's small. Small size, small size, small size. As someone who covers quarterbacks and covers the modern quarterback does his size and his frame really concern you all that much Chrissy no I don't think so because this is a quarterback that also has never shown the tendency to take off running unnecessarily and I think that whenever it comes to a quarterback that has to have a big frame you're looking at a quarterback that is being drafted because they want to use them in the ground game and because they're confident in what they bring to the table as a runner and expect that to be a part of their game at the NFL level um or like I said before, you have someone who has is kind of prone to running outside the pocket, whether they need to or not, and so that they need to have that to absorb the hits. But Bryce Young, you don't find that with, and kind of the same way we mentioned with C.J. Stroud, probably even on a little bit higher level, is really good mentally um, and is really accurate as a passer and looks to throw the ball first um, and kind of leans into that more. So if he's has a good offensive line and he's not looking to run all the time or being asked to run all the time, I don't think that that really matters. I mean, you look at other quarterbacks like Russell Wilson that have had success, and certainly Russell Wilson's like 5'10", 5'11", and that's just one guy off the list. Drew Brees was not tall either. So I think just the same way as someone being 24, 25, 26 years old, that narrative is something that should be dead now. And that brings me to my next question. Hendon Hooker coming off the ACL. He's 25, but, man, he was sensational. He looked like he could even won the Heisman this past year before the injury. Do you believe he's going to be drafted in the first round? And uh, what do you think he brings to the table? Yeah, I think he deserves to be drafted in the first round. I think that he's shown 
everything on tape that he needs to and really um, brings a lot to the table as both a passer and a runner. I think that he's shown that, and it's kind of the best of, the bo- best of both worlds because he transferred from Virginia Tech from a completely different offense. And, I mean, people it's, – it's kind of funny to me. People get so hung up on, oh, it looks like Hennon Hooker was only supposed to read – half the field or this offense was too simple is it going to translate all these question marks and i'm just like do you you, have we forgotten about the fact that he played at virginia tech it's like people will look at the quarterback's final season and nothing else from the history and everything's based on the final season and what they're asked to do yada 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 so i think a lot of the knocks going on around hitting hooker are not valid whatsoever and are a result of people not doing their homework and i think the biggest thing is with the ACL, it's some quarterbacks and just players in general can come back from that and be just as great as they were. And some players come back from that and they are never able to hold a candle to what they once were. I think that's what has got everyone on pins and needles is how is that going to turn out with Hendon Hooker? And I think that it'll be fine. I think that, um, I think that he's someone that may fall further than he deserves to, but I think that whatever team gets him knows that they're getting a, a quarterback that has high potential to be a steal. We'll get you out of here with this. I got about 40 seconds, Chrissy. Who's an under-the-radar guy that you're keeping an eye on that other teams should be paying attention to, in your opinion, outside of the top five? There seems to be some intrigue based on the NFL coaches I've talked to um, that just surrounding Tyson Bajent, kind of a wild-card guy out of Shepard but brings a lot to the table uh, just as a freak athlete that no one really talks about. Um, I thought that he did a pretty good job as a passer, too, and then to come out of somewhere like Shepard, um, is just it's going to be really curious to see what happens with that, whether he gets drafted or not. And then Stetson Bennett, I think, is um, Stetson Bennett made me even eat my words, and I think he's got a, a high floor and possibly a higher ceiling than people realize too. Uh, so I'm curious to see both where he gets drafted and then just kind of how this process shakes out with him as kind of a Brock Purdy-esque type of deal potentially. I think he'll get drafted higher than that though. Chrissy, appreciate the analysis as always. Keep up the tremendous work, and we'll talk to you soon. And enjoy the draft. You too. Thank you. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 doesn't play around when it comes to his personal life. I got one NFL team. I got one college team. I got one Major League Baseball team. And the big fella's also monogamous when it comes to his sports fandom. That's what I got my merch for. That's who I support. Period. Call me old-fashioned. The end. Call me old-fashioned. That's fine. I'll be old-fashioned. RP3 is just committed to providing you with great sports talk here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana. Sports Station. Poll question of the day. Who is the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints history? Oh, our guy Russell now is leading the vote with 38%. 31% of you say Jonathan Sullivan. 28% say Sean Knight, who never recorded a tackle. And only 3% for Alvin Tolls. Let's get to some more comments. Chico Rodriguez says, Alex Molden, first-round pick in the 90s. I would even say Patrick Robinson, another first-round bust. Yeah, Patrick never really worked out. Now, you took him at 32, so it's not that, you know, it doesn't hold the same weight, so to speak, but 
uh, P. Rob, he never turned out. You thought he was going to be a you know franchise corner, and it just never happened. Coach Eric Howard says, anyone who says Ricky Williams really didn't watch the Saints and is probably not a fan, Ricky had nothing to do with the bad decisions of Ditka, and he was a pretty good player for us and even better for the Dolphins. The answer is Sullivan. Robert Duplachan says, apparently people don't remember drafting a punter slash kicker at number 11. That should be 100% on the poll. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Who was the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints draft history? Yeah, it's not Ricky. It's not Ricky. Doesn't even deserve. He doesn't even need to be up there. Patrick Robinson had an okay career too. I mean, he had eleven interceptions for the Saints. Also had a couple other stops. I mean, was a was a starter for multiple seasons. So I, you know, again, like yeah, he wasn't a franchise player, but I don't think he's in the category of any of the other guys we've talked about. Him and Ricky, I would say, aren't aren't a part of that. Group. And also, Robinson was taken late in the first round, right? And we've talked about that. You know, once you get past like around pick 23, 24, 25 to all the way to like 45, 48, they're all about the same. So that's kind of a glorified second round pick. Hour number two in the books, hour number three coming up right here on the game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Hour number three has arrived on this Thursday edition, draft day edition of RP3 and Company. Oh, man. We've had a good show so far as we've been broadcasting live from inside the FCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. I'm the big, bald, and beautiful one, Raymond Parks III. Of course, I'm joined by D'Lo, a.k.a. Dawson Iserlo, a.k.a. Florida State Booster for Acadiana Region. Came, came hard. Came hard in defense of his guy, P-Rob. As he should have. As he should have. That's his guy. For a fellow Seminole, if you will. We've talked a lot of draft on today's show, and guess what? We're still going to do it. We talked to Randy Cross, College Football Hall of Famer, three-time Super Bowl champion. We talked with Chrissy Freud, breaking down the quarterbacks for this year's draft. We're going to talk more about the NFL draft overall with Vinny Iyer from the Sporting News. He'll join us a half an hour from right now. But right now, it's time for us to talk about the Saints. How are they going to approach the draft? What's the latest buzz involving the black and gold with our guy from ChristmasCitySports.com? Les East joins us now. Les, good morning. Brother, how are you, my friend? It's draft day. I'm doing well, Raymond. How are you? I am doing outstanding. So, Mickey talked to the media yesterday, and I love listening to Mickey talk because, you know, it just feels like a lot of the other general managers and people in charge of franchises in the NFL, they approach the draft one way. And Mickey looks at all of them and goes, yeah, that's great and all. And that, that if that works for you, you keep doing that for you. But I'm Mickey Loomis, and I'm going to do the draft the way I've always done it. And uh, that's how that's going to work. That's how it just always feels, Les. 
Well, I think he kind of summed up his philosophy and the Saints' philosophy pretty simply, and that is, and this applies mostly to the first round, but to the draft in general. And, he, and when he said that, you know, find a player that you love and go get them. And uh, that that's what they do. And oftentimes that requires a trade to get the guy that you believe in. And uh, they've done, I believe, 20 trades since 2008. And all of them have been to uh, to move up. None of them have been to move down because he says if you're trading down, you're by definition picking somebody lower on your board. Um so that's not generally the way they want to go. And if the guy you want, the guy you're in love with, is going to fall to you, if you're confident he's going to fall to where you're at, and you stay put and you pick him when you, your turn comes up. And uh, they've had mixed results like every team in the NFL, but on balance I think they've done pretty well, especially since 2017. And uh, they, that's it. They see the draft as an opportunity to grab players that they really really like and if that requires a trade they're fine with that and that's because they try to address all their other issues during the offseason and a lot of times they're not big names they're not sexy names or anything like that but they try to fill those holes early in free agency and that allows them the flexibility to draft best player available, or just go get the guy they're in love with, right? I mean, that, that's what they do every single season. Yeah, and I, I think most teams approach it that way. You know, it, it's basically a three-tiered offseason. You have the initial free agency where you go out, and if you're going to get a big name, that's when you're going to have to get them. But you get whatever you can at that point, and then when the draft comes along, you look at what holes you still have to fill. And you try to address them in the draft, but you also are mindful of the value each time you pick. And then when the draft's over, you're probably going to still have um, some needs or wants that you didn't address previously, and that's what the last part of free agency is for. And, uh, you know, they, they addressed a lot of things in the first wave of free agency. They have eight picks right now we'll see how that plays out over the next three days um to plug in some more holes and then they'll go back to free agency and and see what they can do to try and and fill in the remaining gaps uh before training camp but he another interesting thing he said yesterday is that they have never he said uh eliminated a position from consideration uh, because it was an area of strength. And in, in the question, it, it was couched with a couple of examples like Ryan Ramchek and Teron Armstead. When you had two great tackles on your roster, did you kind of say, okay, we don't need to draft a tackle, we'll look elsewhere? And he said, no. He said, you never have enough good players, and there's nothing wrong with building on a strength. If if that that work to be the best opportunity when it comes time to pick, and you pick the person and you you strengthen the strength, but uh, so everything's on the table each time they come up to pick. We're talking with Les East of CrescentCitySports dot com. He joins us here in RP three and company. So that being said, it wouldn't surprise you at all 
if Mickey Loomis and Jeff Ireland and the rest of the front office team sit down tonight and decide, you know what, we're going to go get ourselves a defensive tackle, even though we signed two guys in the offseason. We're going to go get a wide receiver, even though we brought Michael Thomas back on a team-friendly deal, right? I mean, because they love drafting O-line, D-line, DB, and wide receiver in the first two rounds. It's what they traditionally always do. Those are the positions they value more than any other positions. So it wouldn't surprise you if they went in any of those directions, would it? Those are positions of need. I think defensive line, not just defensive tackle, but defensive line as a whole remains uh, perhaps their biggest need. I think depth on the offensive line is, is something they need to address, and that that's in the last few years they've lost a lot of games uh, to starting from starting def- uh, offensive linemen because of injuries so that you always need depth there, and their depth isn't great right now. Wide receiver, you know, Mike Thomas has played in, what, what, seven games in three years, so you don't know about his availability long-term. And uh, DB, they they use so many DBs that they can always use more there. So, yeah, all of those are going to be – I would be willing to bet that all of those are going to be addressed at some point over the next three days. But I do think sort of a wild card this year is that uh, it, it's an unusually strong year at tight end, and that's an area that they could probably um, use some help at. And and so that kind of comes into play. You know, I, I think Mickey said the average over the last ten or eleven years is one tight end in the first round and one in point five in the second round. So those guys don't generally go early. But I think it's possible you could see the Saints use one of their early picks on a tight end if they think the value is there. Yeah, there's been a lot of buzz about tight end. And now, look, they haven't taken a tight end in the first two rounds of the NFL draft since 1998 or 1999. So it's been you know more than 20 years. But this is a deep class with the tight end prospects. Even with signing Jawan Johnson back to the deal, you still think tight end could be on the table for them within the first two rounds? Yeah, I think it could be. You know, uh, you know, Taysom Hill is still a guy who's being spread thin over multiple positions. So exactly the impact he's going to have at tight end is, is unclear. Jawan Johnson is a nice young player who's developing, but I don't know that he's a uh, what you're looking for in a a well-rounded starting tight end. Uh, you know, they did trade up uh, a couple of years ago to get Adam Troutman in the second or third round, and uh, he's been injured a lot. I think they still like his potential, but they, he has not lived up to their hopes to this point. So, you know, there, there, there are some pieces there, but they don't have, uh, I think, that one player that – would make them feel like they, they really have the, the quality at tight end that they're looking for. So I think that's uh, that's definitely in the mix. That's something I think that will get addressed either in the draft or in the remaining part of free agency. It doesn't mean it's going to be the first or second round pick, but I, I do think it's uh, something that's uh, prominent on their radar. 
if one of the running backs, stud running backs, falls, Bijan Robinson or Gibbs out of Alabama, would the New Orleans Saints draft a running back? It's possible because I, I think almost anything is possible, but I don't think that's very likely. I mean, if, if Bijan Robinson's there at 29, I, I, he would be hard to pass up. And same thing with the guy from Alabama. But uh, I don't think that's what they're looking to do, and I don't think it's likely that either one of those guys is going to be there at 29. But uh, I wouldn't rule out them picking a running back. Generally, they have not, you know, with the exception of Mark Ingram in 2011, when they traded back into the first round to get him, uh, they generally have not used first or second round picks on running backs because they've, they've seen and they've shown that you can get good quality later in the draft, even with undrafted players, and develop them. Um, so, I, you know, it... it if there's somebody there at any position whose ranking greatly exceeds where they're picking, they're going to grab him regardless of position. But I don't think it's real likely that that's going to happen with running back. And another thing Mickey said that I thought was noteworthy is he said that the Alvin Kamara situation will not affect their approach at running back because whatever disciplinary action he might face is a, a short-term issue, which – basically is true. I mean, even if it's a six or eight game suspension, that's fairly significant for next season, but it's not necessarily a reason to alter your draft approach when you're talking about a player you're going to be counting on for years to come. So I I don't know that that's going to influence them tremendously. Les, you know, you talk about DB and they have the uh, approach that you can't have enough DBs. Marcus May was banged up, and he didn't play all that great last year after coming over from the Jets. Honey Badger did play better in the second half of the season, but May may be facing a suspension, possibly from the NFL this year. Is safety an under-the-radar position that the Saints could go tackle? Maybe not tonight, but maybe in the second, third round. Oh, yeah, I think it's definitely uh, a position that's uh, fairly high on the checklist. Uh, You know, for all this talk about how, you know, everything's on the table and they'll go with the highest-rated player, all of which is true, they they still have a pecking order of, you know, ideally the highest-rated player when we pick will be at position A, B, or C because those are our targets because we need help there. I think safety's in that mix. It's in one of the top two or three areas. Uh, you know, I think if you, you could put defensive line first and then you could maybe put tight end or offensive line, but safety's right in there as a second, third, fourth biggest need. And I think it's a bigger need than cornerback if they go DB, although they, they sometimes, as they did last year with Elante Taylor, they can pick a DB and figure out later whether he's going to wind up being a corner or a nickel or a safety. But you're right, safety is an area that uh, is probably going to have to be addressed uh, before training camp. And certainly with eight picks in the draft, I would expect them to address that. And it could very well be tonight or tomorrow, and it could be over the course of the next three days with multiple picks. Get you out of here with this. 
What do you think the Saints are going to do tonight? And that includes, do you think they're going to trade up? Oh, I think it's probably a 50-50 chance that they're going to trade up. I mean, they, they, they do it so frequently. If the player or one of the players they want, they probably have a handful of guys that they would love to get at 29. And if they see an opportunity to go up into the uh, lower 20s and get him, they won't hesitate to do it, especially with the number of picks they have to work with on a trade. I don't think they would trade up very high, but I, I could certainly see them going up, uh, you know, five to eight picks. And uh, I, I think the most likely thing is that it will be a defensive lineman or perhaps a hybrid pass rusher, someone who could be considered an outside linebacker slash defensive end but uh at 29 there's no way to anticipate who that person might be as long as it's not a kicker like they did back in 1979 they should be okay right Les? uh yeah i think so and that that is one area that i think you can probably cross off for the first round kicker and punter <laughs> brother appreciate your time as always man enjoy the draft i know it's gonna be a long night for you but enjoy it and keep up the tremendous work you're doing at Crescent City Sports. Thanks, Raymond. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru, oof, and I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced <laughs> last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Ah, poll question of the day. We're asking people who's the worst first round pick in New Orleans Saints history. Let's get to some comments on Facebook. I've been giving Facebook enough love. That's on me. My bad, Facebook. Edwards says it's got to be Russell. He played in the NFL for only four years, made just four field goals in his career. It also doesn't help that the Saints picked him before Kellen Winslow and Joe Montana. <laughs> uh, you probably didn't know Joe was going to be that guy, right? Because I don't even think the 49ers knew that what they had early on. But Kellen Winslow was was an absolute beast i have a little breaking news for you yes nobody who ever drafts anybody knows who they're going to be that's the whole point of the whole situation so i just think those are now kicker i mean now it was a different time of analytics okay i think the raiders there wasn't analytics involved right the raiders have a little bit uh more shame in their decision to take janikowski but yeah, but Jano ended up being a great kicker, though, yeah, for but a long time. Right, right. But the value of the position. I mean, now you, you people think it's a reach to take a running back, much less a kicker. You're talking about someone who's... The Raiders also thought Darius Hayward Bay was going to be a, a good wide receiver. Right, right. <sighs> yes. But 
my point is, like, I mean, again, like any of these guys, there's not going to be anybody who makes the pick. And there will be people who go, that's a terrible pick. But people do that all the time, uh, and they're wrong every single day. But then so. you also have guys, when the picks come in, we've seen it, where they go, oh, this guy's going to be a Hall of Fame quarterback, or this guy's going to be a franchise quarterback for 10 years, and he's out of the league in three. Right. That's, it, so that's kind of my point about it all. Like, it's it's a crapshoot, yeah, but you probably shouldn't have taken a kicker. No, yeah. That, that, at 11. Yeah, they that's, definitely that's, should not have done that. That's, will, that's, that's not wise. I will second that. Yeah, that was not, that's not wise. Blaine says Peyton Turner and Charles Grant. Why is Charles Grant getting slander on the Facebook? Remember the Super Bowl team played for the Saints for seven years? He wasn't great, but he was a late first-round pick, and he was a serviceable guy. I don't know about I met Charles Grant, by the way. Got my picture taken with him. He's a large man, even for my standards. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a large human. Large human. Once again, who's the first, the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints history? Right now, 40 per, 41% of you say the illustrious kicker taken in 1979 with the 11th overall pick. 30% say Sean Knight. 26% say Jonathan Sullivan. 3% of you say Alvin Tolles. I am surprised that Jonathan Sullivan is not winning this. He was dreadful. Dreadful. And Sean Knight, uh, that was a guy that... Never recorded a tackle. Like, like you're a defensive player, and you never get a tackle. Zero tackles. Zero. Like, you got to work hard not to even get a half a tackle, Dawson. I want some more positivity in the poll question tomorrow. <laughs> it's a good discussion point. People enjoy this poll question. We're having fun today. The poll question isn't bringing us down, is it? It's bringing me down a little. I'm not going to lie to you. A little bit. <laughs> Oh, keep those votes coming on the poll question of the day. Have fun with it. Dawson Dawson just doesn't know how to have fun with the negativity. That's the problem. You'd think working with yours truly and Kevin Foote for as long as he's had now that he would fully embrace that. But yet, he has not. Yet, he has not. Hey, just a reminder. Just a reminder. You got to make sure to check out 1037thegame.com and 1041thegame.com. We're going to have you covered for draft coverage on our website. Saints, Cajuns, Tigers, the next three days, just come to our website. It's free. We're going to have you covered with all the draft picks the Saints have, all the LSU players that get drafted, and all the Louisiana Raging Cajun players that get drafted. By the way, I have a bet with Matt Miguez who bet me that not a single Raging Cajun would be drafted. Lunch is on the line. I said I believe there will be a Cajun Miguez drafted. is watching the movie Draft Day right now, so that just kind of discredits any any bet that he made. <laughs> By the way, I love Draft Day. It is not a great movie. It is not accurate. But it's like so bad it's good. It's like any given Sunday for me. You know, if you're going in watching Draft Day thinking that it's going to be an accurate representation of the process, then you need to just stop. Go watch a documentary. No, I'll argue, like on, on a sports movie conversation, I'll argue like Trouble with the Curve is a movie that's so bad it's good, but that's because the focus of the movie was peripheral to the actual <laughs> sports that were in the movie. Yes. Where the guy can't see a curveball and he looks like a junior college, like not junior college, like a junior high school player. But Draft Day <laughs> tried to make it about the football and got the football wrong, so therefore I can't, I can't I, agree with you on that movie. Uh, any given Sunday is so bad it's good. 
And draft day is 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 a train wreck, but it's a fun train wreck. It's like, oh, we're gonna do something behind the scenes, and you're like, oh no, no, this is this is this is no good. This is no good. Let's head out quickly to the game hotline. Kyle is waiting. He wants to talk Anthony Richardson. Kyle, good morning to you, brother. Happy draft day, bud. What's on your mind? <laughs> well, you know, I've, I feel like I've been I've been listening to all the sports talk radio and and reading things online and I, I still I still can't put my finger on exactly why Anthony Richardson is being valued so high you know um, I mean I don't don't get me wrong I get it I mean he's, he's a physical specimen he's got all the all the great you know he can run fast he can jump high but I think his the, the most glaring deficiency he had in college was accuracy and if there's anything at all that will absolutely murder a quarterback, yep. granted they can stay on their feet and not be on their back, and if he gets drafted to a, a higher pick, those usually aren't the ones that protect the quarterback very well. I mean, the margin for error in accuracy in the NFL is insane compared to college. Hey, look, and you're not wrong. He also struggles with reading defenses, which you have to do at the next level as well. I do think the best thing for Anthony Richardson would be this. Go to a team where he doesn't have to be the savior. Go to a team where there's an established quarterback and he can sit for a couple years and learn and you can maybe harness his potential. You can maybe harness his ability to be able to do things because he does have physical gifts, but the decision-making, that's the thing that stands out to me where I go... But if you're struggling to read defenses against Vanderbilt, how, what are you going to do when you have to play the Baltimore Ravens? What are you going to have to do when you're playing the San Francisco 49ers? That's the thing that gives me pause a lot about Anthony Richardson. Yeah, that's, that's all good points. I mean, you know, and, and you think about in the conference that he played in, we probably have um, in the SEC, we have the most defenses that, are, that you're going to see that are going to be pro-like. So, you know, if, if – if you can excel, that's why I think that's why I overlook a lot of, um, you know, people talking about Bryce Young's height. You know, I'm mean, my favorite quarterback ever was Drew Brees, and you know he's 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 not crazy tall, so you know there's overcoming. But like you said, the the decision making and the ability to read the defense. But then, I mean, if if he reads the defense, you know, it, say he does, and you got that receiver coming across the middle. And the ball's just two steps behind him. That's a pick six in the NFL. I mean, no matter which way you slice it, you you can't make those mistakes. And then, you know, that's that's just where I'm at. I, I agree with you, Kyle. There's, there's, I appreciate there's a team right now. You know, it's it's draft day, um, and yeah, that that movie is is pretty bad. Um, but, <laughs> Kyle, I got to hit a timeout, brother. I appreciate the phone call. Enjoy your day, my friend. Yeah, you too. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The NFL Draft live from Kansas City is tonight. 
an expected 300 to 350,000 people are expected to attend the draft the next three days, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Plenty of intrigue going into tonight's first round. Which quarterbacks are going to be taken in the top 10? Who is going to be bold and trade up or trade back? To discuss it with us to help preview tonight's NFL draft first round action is the man who covers the National Football League for the Sporting News. Our good friend Vinny Iyer joins us now. Vinny, good morning to you. Happy draft day, brother. How are you? Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me, RP3. Oh, thank you for making the time, brother. All right. Uh, we should expect Bryce Young to be taken number one overall. That's pretty much a done deal, right? We think so. Um, that's what the word is here in uh, Charlotte, but you never know. Things could change again. We thought it was C.J. Stroud for uh, several weeks, so who knows? Uh, I'm looking forward to it and uh, just expecting anything can happen, or even at number one. The Houston Texans are extremely intriguing to me because they have the two picks, and there's been some rumblings that they may not be selecting a quarterback. What do you think the Texans are going to do with their new leadership, new head coach D'Amico Ryans, with their two picks there in the top 15? Yeah, it, it's uh, hard for a team like the Texans uh, making picks in the draft, especially with 2 and 12. It's a good position to have, but it's also difficult to navigate uh, that you're not a team that's going to win anything right away. So do you just stockpile the talent that you need at 2-12? and 12? And if you look at the best player, that can be the most disruptive and can help them in a lot of ways and be Will Anderson. So I think you have to approach it that way. Is there a shot they could get a quarterback at number 12? That's something they have to think about. Or could they move back up from 12 to get a quarterback if they passed on one at two? So these are the things they have to weigh. But they can also say, okay, maybe we can just uh, transition again for one more year at quarterback. I know they're not uh, buying Davis Mills anymore as their guy, but maybe they can bridge it together for one more year and then just say we're not a quarterback next year or just take a shot later at someone like Hendon Hooker, maybe the second round. There's a lot of options for the Texans, but again, I don't think they can go wrong going with Anderson at number two. Is Arizona at three the biggest wild card in the top ten to you? Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a couple options they could – to go with. I don't think they're in on Jalen Carter. I think they would definitely jump on Will Anderson if the Texans pass on quarterback. And then the question is, would they go to Tyree Wilson next, or would they drop all the way down to an offensive lineman? Because that's a little bit of a need there as well, on the right side especially. So I, I think the Cardinals, it makes too much sense for a trade down to happen here, because again, if the Texans do or do not take a quarterback, it's still going to leave a lot of options on the board ahead of the Colts pick at number four. So I think you could see a team jump up, maybe Titans there as well, because, again, they are a division rival of the Colts. They want to jump in. Their old scouting personnel guy is now in Arizona as the GM, so maybe they can swing a trade there and land their quarterback of choice ahead of the Colts. So it will be a lot to watch there, but I think the Cardinals – one of the worst uh, rosters overall going into the season. You would really help them to trade down and stockpile picks. Are you buying the C.J. Stroud's going to plummet stuff that's been coming out this week due to the score on a test that I didn't even know about, but I didn't even know was a thing. But are you buying any of that? I think there's a bit of a narrative created around that to maybe justify teams taking different quarterbacks if they prefer them. It's, it's kind of silly. 
Like, I don't think it should be bringing down another guy if you believe that Will Levis is better. That's okay. Just go for it. Or if you believe Anthony Richardson is better, just go for it. You don't need to knock down the other guy and try to justify then in the public perception that you got a better pick than that quarterback who so-called uh, dropped a stock and flipped. So I think there's a lot of gamesmanship going on with not only with what teams are going to do and keeping it from other teams, but also playing with us a little bit and, and using the media and the fans maybe to think one way or another. So I just think you have to be careful and not get overblown with things that are happening here with the rumors and everything. You just have to say, okay, was this player liking this guy before? One test near the end is not going to change things with that philosophy. We're talking with Vinny Iyer of the Sporting News. He joins us here as we preview tonight's NFL Draft. First-round action will be tonight. You know, another team that intrigues me, two other teams that intrigue me in the top ten, is Seattle and then Vegas. They're 5-7. and seven. Seattle has their pick from uh, Denver for the Russell Wilson trade. You know, Geno Smith had a great year last year. His first one that you could consider to be very good or great for him in his career, even though he faded a little bit down the stretch. You know, Seattle's a playoff team from a year ago. Could they go quarterback here, Vinny, or could they just add another piece maybe on the defensive side of the football to try to continue building something around Geno? Yeah, I mean, right now they're in good shape at quarterback. I mean, they got high-level play from Geno Smith. They can execute the offense. They have a good offensive line. And you also have a running game with Kenneth Walker. So they're in pretty good shape offensively when you look at the receivers. I think they'll try to add to that a little bit. They could use a starting center as well. There's a few good ones, including John Michael Schmitz, that could go in the first round, maybe with that second pick of the Seahawks. You look early at a pass rusher or Jalen Carter up to your front, those are the needs that you're being met. So it is uh, a lot of uh, things that the Seahawks can do. But I think quarterback, it's not something they need to look at at this very moment. They've got Geno Smith in a three-year contract. If they fill a few more holes, I mean, they're going to feel really good about their chances of uh, contending, maybe being the favorite in the NFC West just because the 49ers have an uncertain quarterback situation. So the Cardinals are in rebuilding mode, and we know the Rams are starting to tear things down as well. What about the Raiders? The Raiders are a team that I think would also be a candidate to trade back. Would they make a deal with their old friend, the Patriots? The Patriots are interested in one of those top corners early. That's uh, something to watch there. But I, I do look at the Raiders. If they got Jalen Carter, that would be great for them because, again, uh, when you look at Carter specifically to their team, they have really bad defensive tackle situation. They have really below average starters there. So you add Jalen Carter, get a centerpiece for your front that helps Max Crosby and then I think the other way of thinking there for the Raiders is also pretty good because you can look at the top corners whether they like Christian Gonzalez or Devin Witherspoon or Joey Porter Jr. Those options are all available for them there so uh, I think the Raiders are in great shape if they stay put to get the best player available and then come back and address those uh, other positions of defensive need later so Raiders could go either way but now I'm leaning toward them staying put there at number seven. You already mentioned Tennessee as someone who could be aggressive tonight and trade up. And you would the impression for Tennessee is that they're looking to go get one of the quarterbacks and have that be that guy be groomed to be the replacement for Ryan Tannehill. Give me another team outside the top ten that you think could be bold and move up and make a, a big move tonight. 
I think there are two teams that you'd circle there that also need a quarterback. One, maybe in the shorter term with the Buccaneers uh, trying to figure out the Baker Mayfield, Kyle Trask situation that they're sitting down at 19. And a few picks later, I think the Vikings are 23 that are also going to be interested to hear Kirk Cousins' contract. They can finally get out of that in 2024. So they've been linked a lot to Hendon Hooker with they stay put. Both of those teams actually have been linked to Hendon Hooker, but do they make an aggressive move up if they see San Anthony Richardson or C.J. Stroud falling a little bit in relation to Bryce Young or Will Levis? So those are teams you're looking at in the back half that you would think could make a big move here. Vinny, you know, we spend so much time talking about the quarterbacks, and, and yeah, I understand why we do that. Give me some players that you're hearing buzz about that aren't quarterbacks that uh, could find themselves have their names called earlier than maybe many of us think. Yeah, I think corner is all over the board here because the, the two guys that were not in first-round consideration of late, Deontay Banks and Emmanuel Forbes, those guys have got into the conversation that both uh, very active playmakers. And that's the thing. The corners have been very hard to uh, separate here in this draft because there's a lot of guys with sides, a lot of guys who make a lot of plays on the ball, aggressive and attack. So it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out with the order of corners that go off the board. I think offensive tackle as well. You can look at Darnell Wright going higher than expected as well as Dewan Jones. So there's a little bit of uh, the variance on who people like here at those positions. So, that's something to watch. I mentioned uh, John Michael Schmitz. I also look at a potential wide receiver, Jalen Hyatt, with his speed that maybe can sneak into the first round just because he's so fast and can make those big plays outside. And we'll watch on the flip side to see if Quentin Johnston falls in relation to Hyatt. I'll get you out of here with this. The Aaron Rodgers deal finally gets done, and I was a little surprised that the Jets – did not have to give up essentially a first-round pick this year. They're giving up the first-rounder next year and a second-rounder this year, but they essentially just swap spots with the Packers. What do you make of that, and what do you think the Jets and Packers are going to do there in the first? Yeah, I think the Packers need to look for an offensive playmaker, whether it's a tight end. It might be a little too early now that they've moved up to 13. Maybe you look at Jackson's been the Jigba, who's maybe resettled himself back as the trusted number one wide receiver of the board. So, I could see that to help uh, Christian Watson, Romeo Dubs, and uh, also uh, give another reliable target here to Jordan Love. At 15, I think the Jets would look offensive line, so they're probably targeting Paris Johnson Jr. Maybe if uh, Peter Skronsky would drop, I think he's more of a left tackle type. I think Johnson would fit more what they need right now, assuming Mekhi Becton is healthy. So I think offensive tackle is the right way to go for the Jets, and uh, playmaker, receiver, add some more depth for Love would be the way to go in 13. That'd be quite the haul for the Jets to be able to get the maybe the one of the best tackle prospects in this year's draft and get Aaron Rodgers, and that, that could work out fairly well for him. Vinny, appreciate your time, brother. Thank you so much. Happy draft day. Enjoy your weekend. I know it's going to be busy for you. Thank you so much, bud. Right, thank you. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Here on RP3 and Company, everyone is apparently part of the game family. Brother, 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 brother. Seriously, how many brothers does Ray have? Good morning to you, brother. Back to Ray and all of his brothers right here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
Oh, it's a busy weekend, right? The draft starts tonight, then rounds two and three tomorrow, and then rounds four through seven on Saturday. Raging Cajuns baseball is at home against Coastal Carolina. Matt Deggs' team is looking to carry that momentum over from winning back-to-back midweek games and trying to take down a top-ten-ranked Chanticleers team this weekend at the Teague. LSU, of course, is taking on Alabama in a three-game SEC series this weekend. But, hey, also got the Etouffee Festival. All right, 36th annual Etouffee Festival returns to Arneville this weekend. The festival features carnival rides, food, bingo, live musical entertainment, including Adam Leger, band Crossfire, and Gino Delafosse and French Rock and Boogie, just to name a few. In addition to the music and rides, there's the Mayor's Cook-Off Contest on Saturday, bingo, and a car show on Sunday. For more information, visit www.arnevillecatholic.org. That's www.arnevillecatholic.org. I want to take a moment to thank all of our guests on this draft day edition of RP3 and Company. Randy Cross, College Football Hall of Famer, three-time Super Bowl champion. Chrissy Freud, she knows the quarterbacks. Quarterback guru, draft analyst. Les East from CrescentCitySports.com, talking New Orleans Saints. And Vinny Iyer from the Sporting News. We did have a poll question of the day. Who is the worst first-round pick in New Orleans Saints history? Dawson didn't care for this poll question. He said it was too negative. Try to bring him down. Wanted some more positivity in his life. We'll try to do better tomorrow, bud. 41% of you say, oh, poor Russell, the kicker punter out of Texas that they selected with the 11th overall pick in 1979. Ooh, he wins the vote. 29% of you say Sean Knight, who in three seasons in the NFL never recorded a tackle. That is not optimal, by the way. 25% of you say Jonathan Sullivan, who was taking number six overall. Ooh, that was a Jim Hazlitt pick. Ugh. And 5% of you say Alvin Tolls. Thanks to all who voted on the poll question of the day. Thanks to all of you who left your comments on Facebook and Twitter. We appreciate you making us part of your morning. Well, that's going to do it for today's edition of the show. Dawson, we talked a lot. NBA playoffs, some stunning results early on. We talked... Cajuns baseball we talked to Houston Astros taking two of three from the best team in baseball shutting them out back-to-back games building up some momentum they took two or three from the Blue Jays swept the Braves and then took two or three from the Raves so whew, it looks like they've turned a corner brother any final thoughts no we'll see uh we'll see what happens tonight I'm sure there's gonna be a couple surprises I'm excited for it let's get excited let's get excited it is draft day oh for the producer extraordinaire Dawson Iserlow. I'm Raymond Parsh III, better known as RP3. We'll do it all again tomorrow, 6 to 9. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foote and what should be a glorious Thursday morning edition of Footnotes is up next right here on The Game.